I'm done with the elitist stories, politically correct, tech-driven testing to make thoughtless, sad consumers, highly educated human manuals herded together to croon and move over toxin-laced facts. Testing for me is like being kidnapped, gagged, handcuffed, thrown into a small cell where I can't move and I can't show you who I am or what I know. I can't get close to you. I can't, in other words, communicate with you. So when I write, my soul unfolds, my heart opens. That was Jimmy Santiago Vaca. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Black Mountain Radio, broadcast from the Mojave Desert. I'm Sara Ortiz. And I'm Joshua Wolfshank. The Black Mountain Institute is an artist-driven, community-supported literary center, and what we do is we make space. We make space for conversation. We make space for heartfelt works of art. We make space for people to come together around that art, like around a campfire or a ritual meal. If you thought that was cheesy, I did too. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what you're saying is so true. This is a hard time for gatherings. I've hardly left my house in East Las Vegas in months. I want to be with friends and I want to be with our community. But instead, I'm sitting on my kitchen stool at our countertop, which is a Brady Bunch orange color. And that has turned into my office. I genuinely miss people. And I miss the togetherness that comes from our annual Believer Festival and our year-round programs. And it's especially strange because at BMI, we bring people together to hear from literary luminaries. You know, bringing people together, that's what we do. So our answer to this moment, you know, a moment where we badly need a common room, is to create one through sound. So I really feel the same way. And I, you know, I've been stuck in my house so long. I feel like there's this strange pandemic geography where we're kind of anywhere. We could be anywhere in the world. We could be Berlin or Tokyo or Kansas City for a program, but we're also nowhere because it's so has been so disconnected for so long. Or we can be multiple places at the same time. Anyway, this wish to be grounded, that kind of core intention, is why the theme of this episode is land acknowledgement. What is this place we call Las Vegas or Southern Nevada? It's known for the chirps of casino machines. But what about native rhythms and desert winds? We want to really listen to this place and its resonant multiplicities. For their support of this project, we are super grateful to our partners at Zappos and the Rogers Foundation and the College of Liberal Arts at UNLV, all friends of our work to make radio by, for, and about this strange and wondrous place. Yeah, and the more we reflected on this, the more we found that acknowledging this place means looking at its two polar qualities. Southern Nevada is a place where you can get so truly deeply connected to the natural surroundings, whether that's Mount Charleston or Valley of Fire. There is this idea of the, that continuous, the always there, the always will be. Yeah, it's so ancient and primal here, and yet it's also a place defined by change, by newness, by abrupt shifts, explode the old, bring in the new. Yeah, it's definitely defined by both both continuity and transience. That's the paradox that guides this episode. Let's start by talking about how we acknowledge the indigenous history and presence on this land, which stretches back thousands of years. And let's be honest, the first thing to acknowledge is how fraught this practice can be. Here's Sunny Brown. Each night, Right after dinner, my husband and I pack the two young ones in our pull-along wagon for a walk. The traffic is light on Hualapai Way. Sometimes we wheel the wagon from the sidewalk into the double lanes of the road. We used to be able to walk across big plots of land, but new track houses have sprung up on them. In the near distance, there's another feature for our neighborhood, the Las Vegas Ikea. Where we live, People keep to themselves. I catch glimpses of my neighbors as they drive into their garages. I catch glimpses through open blinds as they watch TV with a drink in hand. I catch glimpses on Thursday nights when they take their trash cans to the curb. I wonder who on my street can call this home. Who can say this piece of ground is the same place their ancestors walked and lived on? 
who carries knowledge of this place and their bones from before Ikea blocked the view of Red Rock Canyon, before the strip mall with the Dollar Loan Center and the drive through tie cleaners. How do we connect to and give respect to what came before us? If you've been to a cultural or academic event in recent years, you've probably heard what's called a land acknowledgement, a formal statement to acknowledge the indigenous people on whose land the event is taking place. Here's Cody Gambino, introducing a program called Neon Lit at the Writer's Block in downtown Las Vegas. Hi everyone, welcome to tonight's reading. Before we get started, I would like to take a moment and acknowledge that we are on the stolen and unceded land of the Southern Paiute Nation. Just a reminder, we don't serve- Land acknowledgements are meant to connect us to a place and the people who came before. I don't feel settled here because I'm not from here. I want to know more about the recognition and to see what promise it might hold to stimulate deeper connections. But I wasn't surprised to learn it's not that easy. Right, I'm Tony Jensen. Um, author of Carrie, uh, Survival on Stolen Land. Tony's an author and educator. Her book Carrie came out the week before our interview. Well, I think they started from a really good place and for a really good purpose, which is, of course, just to simply acknowledge whose land we're sitting on at any given moment. About 15 years ago, you started to hear more and more of them, especially in Canada and New Zealand and Australia. They become really common there. In the States, it's still a little hit or miss. It seems like in intellectual or academic circles, you hear more land acknowledgements, right, than you do in rural spaces. Like, I doubt that at the Walmart shareholders meeting, they're doing land acknowledgements, for example, although maybe they would surprise me. Tony makes a good point. I've only heard land acknowledgements in academic circles. At first, it felt a lot like performative wokeness, like a chore. Sponsorship message, check. Social media shout out, check. Land acknowledgement, check, check. I think most land acknowledgements though fall slightly short of that and perform kind of lip service in a, in a performer sort of way by just saying, you know, some Cherokee people used to live here or, hey, the Paiute used to be here. And the used to is, implies a past tenseness that is problematic because of course native people often from those tribes to live in all of those areas. We are gathered here on the ancestral land of the Native Americans. I think that gets lost a little bit and it implies a past tenseness. It also sometimes can seem so pro forma in academic circles as to be almost a mockery of what it was originally intended to do. Chicago was the home of the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi nations. Someone stumbles and kind of just mispronounces sometimes the name of the tribe and then moves on hastily and seems to be embarrassed. And so I'm not sure what purpose that serves. If it's done in kind of that quick, I know we're supposed to do this, but I don't really understand why it's a meaningful sort of way. I don't really know what that's accomplishing. As president, How should people craft land acknowledgments? Yeah, I've heard a couple non-Indigenous friends who've given really good land acknowledgments. And I think part of what made them so good was that they mentioned people who are from the land, specifically living people. And so this notion then that it's not a pastness, if you're talking about um, a friend's work or a contemporary writer's work, right, then you're citing someone who's living. Um, Maybe if everyone acknowledges the land we live on formally like that long enough in every single space people will just start every day to think more about the Native people whose land this was before they moved into it. It's possible. The only member of my family who can call Las Vegas her birthplace is my daughter, Lucy. We kept her umbilical cord to plant in Red Rock Canyon because that's what we traditionally do in my home country of Jamaica. Old timers there will tell you it's the only way to stay connected to the land and its people. And after talking to Tony, I wanted to connect, not just talk to, but walk the land with someone who has that experience. Yeah, this is a part of my story, a part of my history. And I say it as mine, as in I'm not the voice of my entire tribe. 
our tribal council, our elected officials are? Fawn Douglas is a Las Vegas-based artist and member of the local Paiute tribe. She's used art to represent visual land acknowledgements. There's a certain method people use to take a whole rock part out of the, the side of a mountain or the side of a hill or wherever these etchings are. And I wanted to preserve that within my art. Fawn and I walk around the old Mormon fort near downtown Las Vegas, except she calls it the old fort, dropping the Mormon part. Uh, yeah, we're at the, the old fort, uh, formerly known as the old Mormon fort here in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's basically on the corner of Washington and Las Vegas Boulevard. And this was an ancestral, well, all Vegas is, but this was a traditional ancestral homelands of our Southern Paiute people. Fawn wears her hair bone straight and loose under a broad brim hat. We walk to the shade by the gurgling stream and I ask her how it feels to be under the same sky as her ancestors or walk along the spring that encouraged settlers to the Las Vegas Valley. She looks up. I watch her gaze at the replica of the settler's fort, then the cottonwood trees by the stream. There's not much here outside of the visitor center that represents the Paiute's way of life. Some of the trees, Fawn says, have been here long before the settlers. It's kind of like one of those bittersweet things, though, because it feels good to be here knowing this is a place of my ancestors. You know, it's called the Old Mormon Fort, and you can see a recreation of the old adobe bricks. And they do these. They have a, like a workshop where they actually make the bricks here, and they keep restructuring it, and, you know, but the original part... We walk to the visitor center. A statue of settler and rancher Helen Stewart stands guard. She's a tiny woman. Fawn points out Helen's beaded vest, something Fawn thinks Helen got from the Paiutes. A plaque nearby says Helen deeded 10 acres of land in 1911 to establish a Las Vegas Paiute colony, a gift from the mother of Las Vegas. Well, she was actually paid for that. Uh, yes, I read that she is definitely a friend of the Paiutes and she employed some. She was a, a collector of our basketry and such. Um, but, you know, she was paid for that. It wasn't like kindness of your heart to give this land. It's just like, actually, how much do I get for that kind of thing? And she was paid $500. Uh, yeah, yeah. So this is part of the original Springs areas in Las Vegas. Um, we have many different... This guy. Oh, Colonizers. Cool. Always taking space, even when they're not trying to. It's like, oh, you're doing an interview over there? Let me turn on my weed whacker. You, you know, there's several one, thousand three, acres one. here, but let me actually just weed whack that one spot where you are sitting. That's an exaggeration. <laughs> there aren't several thousand acres, but the man did interrupt her interview twice with small talk while turning on his weed whacker to cut a barely there patch of grass. That's what it is. I asked Fawn what land acknowledgments are supposed <laughs> to inspire. I guess how to, how to care for it. How to be a better human. And you know what, these are things that I'm also learning too. We're learning about like protecting the water, protecting the lands, and people are rising up all over the world really for this message of protection. Like we need to protect our mother earth and we're all her children. And so when that was happening, I was learning, like let's say I was having events. My conversation with Spawn was in English as you've heard. Yet I couldn't help but think as we talked how limited English often feels to me. In Jamaica, I grew up speaking Patwa, which is influenced by English, Spanish, and West African dialects. I miss so many of its nuances, but I also know they only make sense in Jamaica. I wanted to think not just about the meaning of land acknowledgement, but also the very words and rhythms we use. And Donis is an intertribal woman who often navigates land acknowledgements using the limitations of the English language. My name is Indonis Spears. Indonis is an Ojibwe word. I am the director of programming and outreach and one of the co-founders of the Agamal Educational Initiative, which is an indigenously, majority indigenously owned consultancy that works with places of knowledge to incorporate indigenous perspectives into their work. And Donna's thinks the language we use is a big part of connecting to a place. The land gave us our languages. Our languages were not developed in England and our languages were not developed 
in any European country, our languages best reflect the landscape we live on. And so, you know, acknowledging that English is an imported good, that English is an imported language that was not born here. English does a great job of reflecting England. It does a great job of reflecting the landscape of England and the values of that culture. But it does not reflect our values here. It will never accurately reflect this landscape that we live on because it wasn't born here. And Donis isn't saying English is hard to use, just inadequate. The word for dirt has a negative connotation. And Donis credits this idea of dirt to Chris Newell, the executive director of the Abbey Museum in Maine. And I'm gonna go ahead and borrow it from him. In English, if you call someone dirty, then that is, um, that's a negative thing. That's, that's an insult, this dirty thing from the earth. But in Passamaquoddy, in his language, the literal translation for soil are the molecules of our ancestors. And so when you have an understanding of this landscape as being part of your kin, as your ancestors are, are buried in this place, and for us as Diné people, as Navajo people, our umbilical cords after we're born are buried in these places, then we are tied to this container that in English we refer to as land, but in our tribal languages, we refer to as these containers of ceremony. The ritual of planting the umbilical cord naturally came up in conversation. Fawn told me she climbed high into Red Rock Canyon to bury her daughter's umbilical cord deep into the dirt. This way animals can dig it up. If they dug it up, then her daughter would wander far from home. I began my conversations with David, the author of The Heartbeat at Wounded Knee, which was a finalist for the National Book Award by telling him about this tradition in Jamaica too. And it's really cool that you guys do that with your umbilical cords and we do the same exact thing. Just this summer when I was back home on the res with my kids, we were out in the woods doing some family stuff and I pointed to this tree and I'm like, hey guys, guess what? All of your umbilical cords are buried under that tree right under that stump because I put that stump on top so animals wouldn't dig it up. You know, and that's, that's powerful. My name is David Troyer. I'm Ojibwe from Leech Lake Reservation. And in terms of occupation, I mean, take your pick. Writer, professor, father, warrior, you know, all of the above. For many indigenous people, land relates to all aspects of existence. Culture, spirituality, language, law, family, and identity. I don't live in my home country anymore and probably never will. I want what land acknowledgements implore us to do, which is to be the person entrusted to care for the land, to remember those who came before and still live, love, and learn on these lands, to continue providing a deep sense of identity, purpose, and belonging. I asked David if land acknowledgement could bind non-Indigenous people to the land. And I've never heard a land acknowledgement that actually acknowledges the land for its own sake, um, which might create an awareness that, you know, we all have to live on it now. And with, with climate change and other things, that's getting increasingly difficult. You know, that, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the best thing to do is like a reverse land acknowledgement. It's like, hi, I'm David Troyer. I'm really happy to be speaking to you here today. I'd like to acknowledge all of the sort of non-Indians who've decided to sort of fuck with us and, and make your homes here without our permission. I'd like to acknowledge your bullshit. And um, I'd like to acknowledge your sort of greed and rapacity and your desire to make a better life at our expense. So thank you for that and uh, enjoy the show. This is not an uplifting way to end the peace, but this is not an uplifting peace to begin with. I came to feel talking with Tony, Vaughn, and Donis and David, just how much distance there is, how much there is to grieve, and how land acknowledgements barely touches upon it. Perhaps recognizing the grief is the way we cleave to the land. When Fawn and I walked side by side, I thought of our ancestors. Fawn and I are the descendants of two continents ravaged by others for profit and power. 
then those people asked us to forget as a nation was created. What keeps me connected is remembering whose land this really belongs to. My daughter's umbilical cord is in a box within boxes in the garage. It doesn't feel right to plant it yet. I think my ancestors would understand. Sunny's essay really frames the core question of the show. How do you acknowledge a place as deep, vast, and paradoxical as Las Vegas, Nevada? And so, you know what, I, I love the way Sunny does this by just getting really specific. It's like, what is her relationship to this question? What's the street that she lives on? Where does she come from? Art is specificity, and that really informs our next segment, where we bring to air the often unheard voices who know Las Vegas and who are Las Vegas. To do this, we partnered with the Oral History Research Center at UNLV Libraries Special Collections and Archives. History usually emphasizes dates and documents, the official stuff. But through oral history, we learn firsthand how people felt, what they saw, and what they care about. It's the experience of people with personal knowledge. It centers on memories, opinion, and distinct points of view not often found in history books. We've talked about how what we're doing here is really trying to listen to this place and Clay T. White and her staff at the Oral History Center at UNLV Libraries have been doing that for so long and have been super generous in opening that archive to us. And there's so much more to come in future episodes. Yep. Cannot wait. Today, as we explore land acknowledgement, Black Mountain Radio's Layla Muhammad presents an oral history from Kenny Anderson. The Nevada desert in America is the scene of the latest atomic test. International observers come by invitation to join scientists, military and civil defense authorities making a study of the test. A whole town of specially chosen types of buildings with dummies inside them has been erected to study survival chances in an atomic explosion. Called Doomtown, the buildings and their contents will test the effect of the bomb at distances ranging from one to two miles. The bomb itself is contained in a device at the top of a tower 500 feet high. This oral history comes from the Native American Forum on Nuclear Issues, an event that spanned two days at UNLV, and is now included in the Nevada Test Site Oral History Project. The project's lead researcher, Mary Pilevsky, notes that of the 1,000 nuclear weapons tests conducted during the Cold War, 928 took place at the Nevada test site. Researchers conducted over 300 hours of interviews with individuals affiliated with and impacted by the site. The project records the experiences of downwinders and radiation testers who reveal that wildlife, water, and weather do not obey the boundaries humans create. For this episode on land acknowledgement, we turn to the voice of Kenny Anderson, a tribal council member of the Southern Paiute people, who describes his experience with a mainstay of Las Vegas history, nuclear testing. My name is Kenny Anderson. I'm with the Las Vegas Paiute tribe. I'm a council member, uh, tribal member. I'm the environmental program manager for the tribe and cultural resource, or cultural representative for the tribe. Kenny Anderson was born in 1958. Both parents are Southern Paiute people who have lived along the Colorado River for at least 900 years, moving north and west into what's today called Nevada, Utah, and California. Uh, we're a small tribe, like uh, maybe 53 members, plus another probably 20 more kids who, when they, once they reach a certain age, become a member. But uh, We've actually been talking with the, uh, we're having meetings with the NRC and DOE concerning our issues on nuclear, the nuclear uh, test site, and having it being uh, sent there through the native land, like 95, and then we have the train tracks. Anderson grew up in Utah and Las Vegas. Now 62, Anderson works mornings for a construction company and his afternoons at the Nuwu Marketplace, a Paiute cannabis shop on Main Street. In 1863, the Treaty of Ruby Valley recognized a large swath of land as Western Shoshone homeland. It stretches across what is known as Southern California, Nevada, and into Idaho. The Nevada test site was an outdoor laboratory used to conduct experiments for the U.S. during the Cold War. 
The test site exists on Western Shoshone homeland according to the Ruby Valley Treaty. In fact, the 928 American nuclear explosions in New Segovia have been classified by the Western Shoshone National Council as bombs rather than tests. Many cameras in many locations film the single blast. The testing on the site affected those far beyond its boundaries and into surrounding communities. While the test site provided jobs to thousands of people, the danger of radiation continues to affect populations on farms, ranches, and communities, including Indian reservations. Hopefully all the other states will try to stop this nuclear waste from coming into Nevada, but uh, we're a small tribe, and some of the problems that we were, we were trying to talk to the DOE is the problem with transportation and what happens if it, if it you know, crashes and all that radiation is released into the area. We have a, we're, we're a small tribe, but our economic uh, development will be totally devastated. We were telling the NRC and the DOD the same questions, you know, what do we do? What do we get out of it? Are we supposed to just move away just like uh, non-natives do? Because, you know, because we're from here. We're from this valley. We've been here for over a thousand years. And our family's here, and we're not moving. But uh, we would like to have, how would you say, guarantees what happens to us. Where do we go from there? We're talking about Moapa and Vegas, and it goes up to the southern Utah area. That those five bands up there, all those people were uh, affected. All that radiation came over and they seen it. They'd have to just either one day stay in the house and one day they'd have to go out into their gardens and, you know, pick. Well, back then they had, to, had they did a lot of farm work and like you know, picking vegetables and stuff like that for farmers, but they were out there exposed to this uh, radiation all through that area. Kenny Anderson's mother died of leukemia at age 65. He has continued his work bringing awareness to indigenous history and to the health needs of the indigenous community. A lot of these people aren't here no more to tell the story because they're gone. They're, you know, they, they were exposed and now they, now they have leukemia, you know, which is sort of like strange for Native Americans to get. You know, they die. And says, where's their story, you know? They, do they tell me? Yeah, they seen the they seen the big bloom of light, and as it came this way, and, and they thought it was really nice. You know, it was wow, look at that. You know, we get to see something. But no, that's not. They didn't realize what it really was. And the government really didn't actually tell a lot of people either. Natives and non-natives were like really exposed in the southern Utah, in the southern Nevada area, and they're gone too. So you know, where, where their, where, where's their stories? They're, they're not here because they're gone. But what we would want to do is like, is to tell us to, or tell the uh, you know the like the people who are involved with the the DOE and the the NRC to you know to protect the people who are, are here now. You know, Vegas. If something happens, Vegas is going to be. They'll all go. You know, they're all going to go to another. They'll make a new Vegas somewhere else. You know, but we're going to be here. You know, Sada, I spent a lot of time on Google Maps, and when I thought about this episode, I've mostly thought that we're hitting that that minus sign, press it three or four times, and zoom out, and see the urban landscape of Vegas as it sits near Phoenix and Albuquerque. What's the shared experience of these cities? What do these urban Southwest places have in common? Yeah, I really like, I really like that visual of zooming in and zooming out. So in this new essay for The Believer, the Black Mountain Institute's flagship magazine, the writer Kyle Pauleta has this interesting declaration. He declares that there is a singular ethos of what he calls the city Southwest. And in this essay, adapted for audio by producer Claire Mullen, Kyle explores the distinct literature of these urban spaces. And so what you'll hear next is Kyle's narration plus a conversation with one of the artists featured in the essay, and in my opinion, is the heart of this essay, and that is the poet Jimmy Santiago Vaca. Mm-hmm. 
In Ansel Adams' famous 1941 photograph of the tiny town of Hernandez, New Mexico, a silver moon hangs in the sky above a few adobe houses behind a humble graveyard, its slapdash crosses shining white despite the twilight hour. In the distance, the snow-capped Sangre de Cristo Mountains cut a jagged horizon line. Between their peaks and the village runs mile after mile of bleakest desert, hosting little more than sagebrush and stone. Eighty years later, the image remains a fair proxy for what most Americans imagine when they think about the Southwest. As far as many outsiders are concerned, the desert Southwest will forever seem an antidote to the quotidian troubles of coastal society, more a landscape than a region. Never mind that the Southwest has spent more than a century and a half relentlessly urbanizing. Today, Phoenix is larger than Philadelphia, and close to three-quarters of Nevada's population lives in metropolitan Las Vegas. It is within the sphere of cities like Albuquerque, Tucson, and El Paso that the contemporary culture of the Southwest resides. Growing up in Albuquerque, it wasn't until high school that I began to understand how the history of the Southwest has influenced the city's present. I had never thought about that divide as particularly literary. That is, until I was 17, when I read the poet Jimmy Santiago Baca's book, Martin and Meditations on the South Valley. It was the first time I understood my hometown, not as the type of dangerous backwater where cops was filmed, but instead as the backdrop to a work of bona fide literature. It's been years since I first read Martin, but in the summer of 2019, I finally got to talk with Baca when I was back in New Mexico. We reached him again recently at his house in Albuquerque. I'm Jimmy Santiago Baca, and I'm a poet. I've been a poet all my life. Baca lived on his own in Albuquerque as a teenager in the 60s, then was sent to prison in Arizona for six years in 1973. It was there that he learned to read and write. Since then, he's published over a dozen books of poetry, in addition to memoirs, essays, stories, and a screenplay. When I first spoke with Baca, I wanted to know why he has stayed in Albuquerque, even after all the city put him through as a young man. He said he likes the Southwest because the voice of nature is so huge, I can feel its heart beating in every poem that I write. Of course, there are also less lyrical reasons. But I just happen to like Albuquerque because it's such a cool place that hasn't yet been discovered by anybody uh, except Willie Nelson and a few other people. But, but it's just a really cool place, man. When we talked, Baca described the thriving Chicano scene he was welcomed into in Albuquerque's South Valley after he got out of prison. Back in the 80s, the South Valley's 300-year-old adobe farmhouses were home to Native American activists, muralists, and other Chicano artists. And it became the Chicano outlook, where you see your history and you, you, you say, okay, I'm not Spanish, but I'm not fully Native American, but I'm a mixture of the two. I know my history, I know what they did to us, I know how we've always lived on this land. My grandma was Native American, my grandfather was a Mexican Indian. They called themselves Mexicans, but because of the political turmoil in which I grew up in, I call myself Chicano, because, because of the things that were happening to us and how Corky Gonzalez, Andreas Tejerina, and Cesar Chavez, all of those people came and they, they said, Chicanos are this, Ruben Salazar on the East LA walkouts and stuff. They defined what Chicano was for me, and I realized I'm Chicano. And ever since then, my skin fits much better. Albuquerque was also one of the urban epicenters of the Native American Red Power Movement. Today, Native American and Chicano artists and activists have continued that legacy. We don't have conversations about indigenous cultures and land. We don't have conversations. We don't sit around and talk and then publish poems about it at Yale or something like that. We don't do that. What we talk about is we all know that we're poets or writers, and we all know that it's all that we can do is just to keep our confidence intact. That, that we don't let the outer cultures come in and make us doubt our word. 
Because our word is not based upon being right or wrong. It's based upon the faith behind what we say. So we have faith that Mother Earth will take care of us. And then we work our voices and our hearts to keep intact the confidence and the conviction and the love within that to write poems that are strong. And when people read them, they don't tell us this is right or this is wrong. They tell us, holy shit, that's a good poem. I just felt something in my body, you know? And that's what we're from. So we believe that that only comes from, not from conversations, not from intellectual dialectics and stuff like that. That comes from a deep belief in something that's much greater than us. And that's community. The United States is a well-oiled slavery machine. And that slavery machine is to make sure that all rich white people can have free labor if they need it, can be at ease by putting the best of our youth in prisons. Besides Albuquerque, Baca's other base is north of Santa Fe, where he built a cabin for his family. He's also established a retreat for writers there and founded a nonprofit that hosts workshops and outreach programs for young people, prisoners, and ex-prisoners. We have retreat houses for ex-convicts to come finish their books. We have mentoring programs. We have internship programs. We have literacy programs, on and on and on. So the work that I do is, is I try to get them to understand how great they are and get these beautiful human beings that are in their mid-30s, early, late 20s, get them to meet language. So my job is to tap that good intention faith and get them to write great poems, amazing books. I think I've had at least 20 of them write books and get published. I've had some other alumni start bookstores, open up writing workshops, start acting workshops. You you know, you just got to go there and you just have to let them know that you're the walking, talking model for what's possible. So we try to keep everything real modeled on real basic, humble foundations, you know. You get up, you make the coffee, do your meditation, write, and then go out and work. And you know, the more they get into the sanity of living, the stronger they become and the better they write. All we're really doing is preparing to go into the city and destroy its mores with our cedar morality, with our, with our granite morality, with our field morality. All we're doing as writers is preparing ourselves to go in and destroy the literature of the cities and talk the truth to them. But we're not doing it glibly. We're not doing it artificially. We're doing it with a strong, strong grounded base where we come from. And that makes us going back into the urban cities that much more powerful, that much more empowered to speak. What's remarkable is that unlike artists like Georgia O'Keeffe, Donald Judd, James Terrell, or even Anna Castillo, Baca's artistic practice has not prompted a retreat into the landscape but instead an ever-deeper engagement with the city it enveloped. And distinct from transplants like Barbara Kingsolver or Dave Hickey, Baca's having come of age in Albuquerque gives his work about the city a special intimacy. That's where the great writers come from, community. Not this bootstrap, do-it-your-own individualism, stuff like that. But we also believe that you can write poems from an apartment in Manhattan or you can write poems from an apartment in East L.A. or Seattle or Detroit or Chicago. You can write poems from there. But writing a poem from there and enjoying the notoriety that that gives you with all the writers in that city is quite different than going off by yourself and working really hard to buy 10 acres of land and then build a house and then build a guest house for someone younger than you to come and finish their work. That's an entirely different type of poetics than what is urban poetics. It's a whole other world when you when you live in the mountains and you've, you've worked really, really hard to establish a community that you know is going to nurture the writers to come for 100 years. And, and it's a beautiful feeling to know that you did that rather than pursue a National Book Award. When the water comes down from the mountain springs, 
and you know that it's going into these two cabins and that the people are bathing in it right now and they're making coffee right now, that's your National Book Award. That to me is like, dude, what other award do you want? That's the award. Rather than being considered as a poet of the city Southwest, Baca is mostly discussed in terms of his impact on Chicano literature. Similarly, the poetry of Joy Harjo, Ophelia Zepeda, Lucy Tapahanso, and Lely Long Soldier is unjustly filed away with a diverse array of other Native writers, while the excellent Anglo storytellers of Nevada, like Claire V. Watkins and Charles Bach, are labeled Western, as if they wrote books about cattle wrangling rather than the coercive violence and stunted ambition that lurks beneath the surface of contemporary life. Although all of these authors have written about the city Southwest, the literary vision of the region is still dominated by the landscape beholden work of Willa Cather, Edward Abbey, and Cormac McCarthy. The thing that Southwest literature has has done is two things. They've taken a bunch of white writers and written about the cowboy lore and made made assassins their heroes. Like, there's nothing good about Davy Crockett except he massacred a bunch of Indians. There's nothing good about Billy the Kid except he went out and he killed everybody. But you, you put that in the hands of a white writer and all of a sudden Billy the Kid becomes a hero. And for some reason, uh, Americans are still in love with that myth of the cowboy being this individual who can who can tame the savages and, and get the land to do what he wants to do with the land. But in reality, they were slave owners, they were slave traders, and they were straight up serial killers. They could kill whoever they wanted when they wanted. And we still haven't turned that corner in our Southwest literature. If somebody was to criticize a book like, say, All the Pretty Horses, or all these other Western historians, they would come out by saying that you're being racist in your analysis and stuff. When in true fact, if, if we had a historian from the Chicano perspective, we would say like the Texas Rangers, they were just a gang of serial killers. So we're hurting for real critical analysis of Southwestern literature. The thing that I find most disturbing about the Chicano literature is that we're so busy trying to please the colonial publishers in New York. We're so busy trying to please the editors, almost 90% who are white. So a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of writers, we're trying to please them. And I'm not here to please anyone. I'm not here to win anyone's approval. And that's really important because you, we have to teach our kids, you have to win the approval of your heart. When you go to bed at night, you know, you know how you've lived that day. You don't need your mom and dad or a teacher or some editor in New York to say, you've lived the day good. You know in your heart. Now we have to transfer that into a literary form that's contributable to society so that other people can read it. Find a link to Kyle Pauletta's full essay and hear Jimmy Santiago Baca's poem, Poet's Prayer, in its entirety at blackmountainradio.org. <laughs> I mean, ha- have you been asked what hotel you live in? <laughs> if I'm being honest, no one has ever asked me that yeah. question. Not one person. But I know that a lot of people do get asked this I, ridiculous question. Yeah. This is news to absolutely no one in Southern Nevada, but remarkably, still news to much of the world. Las Vegas is a place where people live, change tires, do taxes, go to the dentist and read books, perform all the many functions of the everyday. But everyday here also means facing the particularities of this place. And to get to know the real Las Vegas, we have to get to know the people that live here. In our next segment, Black Mountain Radio's Vera Blossom invites Las Vegas residents to help us understand their experience of one of the most misunderstood places on earth. Vera did this by asking the same five questions of each person, and while she was at it, she also turned the mic on herself. Where is home? Where is home? What do you think the future of this place looks like? What is the most difficult part of living here? 
how long do you plan to stay? How has living here encouraged you to grow? We hear from a transplant. Marta, Miana, and Nomad. Um, so my name is Rishta. An indigenous person. My name is Jeanette Patty, a first-generation Las Vegan. Hi, my name is Vera Blossom. And a fourth-generation Las Vegan. My name is Michaela Whitmore. Here's 5 by 5 You know, that's a really complicated question for me because I'm an immigrant twice over. I was born in Madrid, Spain, and my parents immigrated to Canada, to Montreal. And then I immigrated from Montreal to Las Vegas. Um, so the truth is that there is no one place that is completely home for me. It's a little bit Las Vegas, it's a little bit Montreal, and it's a little bit Madrid. On the other hand, no one of those places is 100% home the way I imagine uh, it might be for someone who grew up and stayed in one place. So when I came 23 years ago, the reason I decided to stay and to choose this over other opportunities is precisely because I thought there were so many opportunities for growth. And of course, when you connect to opportunities for growth in a place, you have to grow along with it. And so I still think this is an incredible place in terms of the openness to doing things differently um, that you don't find in, in kind of more established towns that are steeped in that intellectual tradition. Each place has kind of grown a part of me. And what Las Vegas has grown is really an openness to reconfigurations of how things are done and how things are created. There is so much talk about diversifying the economy. Uh, there's so much talk about trying to re-envision urban planning. You know, there's a part of me that's lost a little bit of faith in any of those things happening because I've been hearing that for 23 years. I, I can't say that I see this becoming a walkable city a la New York or San Francisco anytime soon. On the other hand, what we have that those cities don't have is that within 10 minutes, you're in this gorgeous desert with this big sky and you're completely alone, surrounded by gorgeous vegetation. So I'm not sure how this is going to look in the future. My guess is not very different. When I first came, I thought, okay, we'll do this for two or three years, you know, and I'll, I'll get this whole sun desert thing out of my system. Well, it looks like I'm here for good because I've been here for 23 years, but I, uh, it, it really has uh, become an integral part of me. I love this landscape. I'm from India, so I guess I will always call Delhi my home if they'll allow it. I've kind of grown up all over the place in India and I've lived in New York before this and that city shaped me in more ways than I can even begin to count. These are all the places I'll list when someone asks me what is home. <laughs> and to be honest, to be completely upfront, I've been having trouble envisioning any sort of future possibilities, not just of Vegas, you know, I think we're living in a time um, where it's so easy to be exhausted, to be resigned, um, to be present and not think about um, a future of any sorts in both, in both horrible and not horrible ways. I really want to say something hopeful. <laughs> I, I, will, I, I will say this. Um, I'm teaching creative writing this semester and my students who are undergrads constantly surprise me and make me so, so glad to be with them right now. They're so tired and so bright all at once. Um, and they're making the best of it. They're struggling like the city is struggling right now. And in some ways, they are the place for me. They are Vegas for me. And so the future, I would say, looks like them.
right now i don't think i can live the life of someone who can plan their arrival and departure in this country there is an expiration date on my visa right now that's such a complex question if i would have to say one place it have to be a house i grew up in in north las vegas That's definitely when I think of home and when I close my eyes and I imagine a place where I'm the most comfortable. That's it. Cuz you know you have to be comfortable to grow. You have to be feel safe and feel and be around like familiarity. And so that's kind of how it allows me to grow, making me feel like I have a safe place to be, to try new things and to really kind of venture out. especially during the summer i think about how unnatural it is for so many people to be living here and all the water that's wasted and all the electricity that gets wasted and how vegas is kind of bad for the environment and yeah it's definitely unnatural all these people living here and it's unfortunate but it's also so beautiful the future of las vegas looks different from the future of any other city. It shouldn't be we shouldn't be looking at the future of this city to be like New York or LA because this city is completely different. I do see Las Vegas becoming more diverse in the economy because I know that coronavirus definitely opened a lot of people's eyes as to how dependent we are on the hospitality industry in the city. and how if that one thing falls the whole city can fall I actually have plans to move from Las Vegas in a few months but I am Navajo and something that I've always been taught as a Navajo woman is that you go off and you learn different things you travel you build yourself up as a person and then you go back to your home and you bring all those experiences and all those teachings that you had that you learned and you use them for your home to make your home a better place. In the end game, I definitely see myself coming back to Vegas and retiring here and getting old here because it is home. <laughs> I always felt that home was somewhere else. I don't know if that was because I missed being by the water or if it's because I resented my parents and I just thought home was not where my parents were. And I actually frequently had daydreams about the smell of the ocean while I was like walking from home to school. And If you listen to palm trees um like waving in the wind it can sound like water crashing and it it made me really homesick. I think at some point I felt that like Las Vegas had left its mark on me and I started considering this place my home. The things that encouraged me to grow were all of the adversities <laughs> that growing up here gave to me. the lack of resources here the lack of infrastructure the lack of places to go as a young person Las Vegas is like built for people who are 21 and up who want to like play hard and i as like a 16 year old did not like parties and i just wanted like a place to feel safe and i don't think i had that so i had to find out how to make myself feel safe in places that felt hostile and in places that felt like indifferent towards me and i had to get really comfortable with myself <laughs> yeah las vegas definitely gave me some tough love the the desert makes you feel so exposed like it it feels impossible to hide from other people or or from yourself the most difficult part of living here is that it it's hard to think of yourself as someone who is trying to live a sustainable life and who wants to like connect with your community when the community is like spread like really thin butter over the whole valley like urban sprawl just keeps crawling out 
I think I'd feel a sense of guilt for living here. I feel a motivation to leave because I feel like staying here might be contributing to an unhealthy relationship that this city has with the land it's on. I'm living in my childhood home, this the same home that I've lived in essentially my whole life. It's it's interesting because I was never really aware of how special growing up in Las Vegas was when I was growing up in it. I, I knew that something was unique about it, but I, I couldn't quite understand it until I got a little bit older. And, and that, that was interesting because we're such a small town. So like feeling, feeling both sides of that coin. We're like a mirage in the middle of the desert, you know. I, I think that was a, a very big part of my, my upbringing, was escaping to the desert and, and feeling the most safe, actually, when I was in the desert. Growing up and living here, one of the most difficult parts was being subjected to seeing like the perception of Las Vegas and the perception of who lives here on the national and global scale and how that comes back into our physical landscape and then alters the way people treat and respect us. I think on a grander scale, what was difficult about it was just this kind of widespread perception that our existence as a town was to serve as a tourist attraction on a national level. So no matter what, we are always having to sacrifice our well-being and say yes in order to provide just for our basic needs of life. I would love to see a future Las Vegas that really is a is a safe space for all of its inhabitants, allowing people the freedom to live and enjoy some form of their life. Las Vegas is such a beautiful and special environment. I always want to be here. This is my home, and even if I left it, this is my home. This would be a home base. This is somewhere I'm always going to have a tie and connection and interest in protecting. As long as there's water, <laughs> I will be here. If you call the Las Vegas Valley home, we want to hear your answers to these questions. You can find them posted on blackmountainradio.org, where you can leave us a voicemail or a written message. P.S. We love postcards. We truly hope you enjoyed this inaugural episode of Black Mountain Radio. Black Mountain Radio is a project of the Beverly Rogers Carol C. Harder Black Mountain Institute. Joshua Wolf Schenk is the artistic and executive director. And Sada Ortiz is program director and directed this episode. Production assistance by Vera Blossom and Layla Mohammed. Sound design by Nicole Kelly. Our musician in residence for this episode is Jeremy Klawicki. Art by Jesse Jung. Graphic design by Lily Allen. This episode featured stories by Sonny Brown, Claire Mullen, and Kyle Paoletta. Special thanks to Kenny Anderson, Jimmy Santiago Vaca, Vaughn Douglas, Tony Jensen, Marta Miana, Jeanette Patty, Sreshta Sen, and Donna Spears, David Troyer, and Michaela Whitmore. And thanks to the rest of the team at the Black Mountain Institute, Kellen Braddock, Daniel Gambiner, Haley Patel, Kristen Radke, Summer Tomad, Michael Ursell, and Haya Wang. Big thanks to our sponsors at Zappos who help make this episode possible and who contribute to Las Vegas's creative communities with playful, people-first approaches to arts and culture. And thanks to the Hank Greenspun College of Urban Affairs, the home of KUNV. Special shout-out to our engineer, Kevin Kroll. Black Mountain Radio is broadcast from Southern Paiute land, with the support of the Rogers Foundation and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. So we can come back on air soon. Please consider supporting this project and all we do 
as a friend of the Black Mountain Institute. We welcome volunteers and advice and urge anyone who is able to go to blackmountaininstitute.org and make a donation of $10 a month. In addition to a heavy fallout of cosmic gratitude, you'll get a subscription to The Believer, a thank you in its pages, and other tokens of our appreciation. Learn more at blackmountaininstitute.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Sada. Thank you, Josh. We truly hope you enjoyed this special pilot episode of Black Mountain Radio. We will come back in the spring with new episodes.